If you would please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We've been studying the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And as we've seen, the theme of this book is God's unchanging love. That is, God loves his people. He still loves his people in spite of all appearances to the contrary. I have loved you, we read in the second verse, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? To review a bit, Malachi's audience is skeptical. Times are hard. They have become hardened. Um, Their expectations were when they came back from exile, everything would be wonderful. Because that seems to be what the prophets had prophesied. That the population would increase, that the land would flourish, that they would no longer be under a foreign power. And the reality is quite different. The population is a fraction of what it was. The the land has experienced famines and droughts, and they're still under the Persians. So how is it that God can say that he loves his people? Malachi tells them that, in fact, is the case. But what does it mean when we say that God loves us? What is God's love like? So we've seen there are three characteristics, at least, that we can say with regard to God's love. First of all, that it is independent. God loves us because he chooses to, not because he has to. No one has forced him to love us. It is his nature. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always eternally loved each other, and that love has overflowed to the creation. Secondly, God's love is unconditional. Uh, And Israel had to be reminded this time and time again, because when they started out, there weren't very many of them. And as time goes on, they increase in number, and they think, well, God loves us because we are such a wonderful people. And the reality is God loves them unconditionally for his own sake, for his name's sake. God loves when there is nothing to love and when there is nothing worthy of love. And then lastly, we see that God's love is intensely intimate. It's personal. It's not just sort of this warm, fuzzy thing that goes over humanity. God loves people individually and he loves them intimately. Moses said to Israel, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord said his affection, I like that word, his affection on your fathers, your forefathers, and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Yet for all this, the people during the time of Malachi doubt God's love. Having said that, they were in fact marked by indifference and carelessness, half-heartedness in their worship of God. If they were convinced that they were, in fact, the chosen people of God, and they doubted that God was keeping up his end of the covenant, why weren't they doing what they were supposed to do? Did it not ever occur to them that perhaps the fault might lie with them? So we see in verse number six, no honor is given, which is due a father, and no respect is shown, which is due a master. So we saw last week, Their indifference, their carelessness is seen in their offerings that are brought. They bring crippled animals, they bring blind animals, diseased animals, and the law is very specific. They are to bring animals without defect, and yet they have not done that. And what we saw last week, the focus is not so much on the people bringing the sacrifices, even though that's there, but on the priests, because the priest is the one who should know better. The priests are in charge of what we would call today quality control. If you bring a blind animal, the priest is supposed to say, no, this is not acceptable. 
If you bring a crippled animal, the priest is supposed to say, no, we cannot accept this as a sacrifice to God. The priests were mediators. They were teachers. They were judges. They should have known better. And yet they allowed these, these terrible animals, and no other way to put it, to be brought in as sacrifices. When I said that they are in charge of quality control, it isn't just the animal, the sacrifice that is being brought in, but of the person as well. You see, the gift reveals the heart of the giver. I can't look into your hearts. The priest could not look into the heart of the people giving. But if you bring something that is not allowed, well, that says something. It says that you're being very careless or even rebellious. I don't care what God says. God says no blind animals. Well, here's a blind animal. As much as to say, I know better than God. The Levites, the priests, were in fact to examine the animals and in a sense, in that case, examine the hearts of the people who are giving their sacrifice. And as I mentioned last week at the end of the sermon, the example of Cain. Cain's problem wasn't the gift, it was his heart. And God spoke to him about this, and what was in his heart is revealed in the fact that he ends up murdering his brother. The priests have allowed these, these terrible things. And God says, you have shown contempt for my name. How have we shown contempt for your name? You placed defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. There needs to be a recognition, or there needed to be a recognition, that the, the offering of a defiled offering was showing contempt for God. And to say that the Lord's table is contemptible is to defile the Lord himself. This is personal. This isn't just about the animal being sacrificed. This is about the person and his or her relationship to God. And ultimately they are showing contempt for God and they are defiling God, if you wish, by their sacrifices. I said earlier that one of the characteristics of God's love is that it is personal. Should not our response be personal as well? Uh, Instead, what we find among the people here of Israel is this cold, careless, do-whatever-they-want attitude toward God as they seek to, quote-unquote, worship him. And yet, what do we hear from them in verse number 9? Now implore God to be gracious to us. And here I think there's real irony. They are treating God like dirt, but they want him to bless them. Uh, they despise the Lord, they show contempt, but they want him to be gracious to them, to, be, to bless them. They seem to see it as a one-way street. God is there to serve us. He is there to bless us. And we don't have to do anything. And we can do whatever we want, but it's on God that he has to bless us. He is to be gracious to us. I mentioned this, I think, the last two Sundays, but I think it's important. This raises a question about God's love being unconditional. If God withholds his love because I don't do what he wants me to do, then it seems that his love is conditioned on me, not on him. No, God does not withhold his love. See, that's, that's the mistake that is made. Because of God's love, he will not accept this bad behavior. In the same way that a parent disciplines his or her child, 
And the child might say, well, don't you love me anymore? Or may even say, you don't love me. No, it is precisely because the parent child uh, loves the child that he or she will discipline the child. Unconditional love will, in fact, seek to create, uh, correct bad behavior. And so God says in verse number 10, he would just prefer that the temple doors be shut, no more sacrifices, no more offerings, no more worship of God if they're going to do it badly. Well, someone might get worried. Then that means no one's going to be worshiping God. In verse 11 and then verse 14, we say, no, actually God is Lord over all creation. And the reality is, he will have people who are worshiping him. And if it's not the Israelites, then it will one day be the Gentiles. There's one more thing as we came to the end of chapter 1. One reason why, why the Jews are so careless in their worship is that they are bored. They're just bored with it. Just doing the sacrifice over and over and over again. Um, verse 13, you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. It's like they couldn't be bothered. This, I think, is the heart of the matter. They want God to gush over them in love. They want God to make the land bloom. They want to have a lot of children. They want all of these things. But they don't want to respond in kind. They're bored with the whole business. And this is a problem. One more thing, and then we will get to chapter 2. Um, as I said before, we need to remember that the words of the Old Testament, and here in Malachi, uh, were written or addressed to a specific people in a specific situation at a specific time in a specific culture. And we here, as we read it, are specific people in a specific situation, specific time in a specific culture. And we must take care how we apply what Malachi is saying to Israel, to the Jews, as we seek to apply it to ourselves. And I mention this because somebody asked last Sunday, does this mean that I am now the priest and I'm going to check, I'm going to be checking all your offerings? And that way I'll be quality control and I'll make sure that you guys are doing what you're supposed to do. No, I believe that if you look in the New Testament, in the church, we are all priests. In a sense, we're all supposed to keep an eye on each other, not like the Gestapo, uh, secret police, but to watch out for each other. We can't see into each other's hearts, but at least to check and to say, are you bored with this? Is there a carelessness here? What is going on? Now we come to chapter 2. And as it opens, we see that it is still the priests who are being addressed. And it may seem that God is being really, really harsh with them. But consider that along with the prophets and the kings, priests were divinely appointed leaders of the people. And in fact, the priests preceded the prophets and the kings. The prophets, there's an iffy there because Abraham was called a prophet, but the, the priesthood certainly came before we find the prophetic office later on. And yet what we find in Malachi is that the priests had failed to do what they were called to do. God had given them an appointed task, and they had failed to do that. And there will be consequences, because God loves them. Look, if you would, at verses 1, 2, and 3. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, 
And if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival offerings, and you will be carried off with it. I have in my notes, let's take a moment and catch our breath. Recognize what's being said and how harsh it really sounds. The harshness is evident. This admonition is given to the priest. What does it mean, I will curse your blessings? Well, in Numbers chapter 6, and it's a passage that we often use as the benediction, we read, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. This is how they were to bless Israel. Now for their failure to do what they were called to, what they were appointed to do, their blessing will turn into a curse. If you wish, as they seek to bless the people of Israel, instead of it being a blessing, it would be a cursing. This is hard. This is harsh. Because they have not honored him, instead of them blessing the people of God, they will end up cursing the people of God. I certainly don't imagine that that's what's happening, but that's what God says. And then verse number three, because of you I will rebuke your descendants, I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival offerings, and you will be carried off with it. There will be consequences in the future on their descendants. The priest should not imagine that there will be no consequences, that these are victimless offenses. God doesn't care if we don't do things the right way. Yeah, there will be consequences, not only in their lives, but in the lives of their descendants. And as I see it, there are two possible responses to this, verse number three. The first is found in a quote from Thomas Paine that I came across recently. Thomas Paine, one of the founding fathers here in the United States. If trouble must come, let it come in my time so that my children can live in peace. In other words, if, there's going to be, if there are going to be consequences, it should happen in my lifetime, to me. And then my children can live in peace. That, I think, is the preferred route. But what do we find in the Old Testament? We find the second one. Um, the story of, there's a story of Hezekiah that he was visited by some dignitaries from Babylon. At that point, Babylon was still not a, a major world power. It was sort of up and coming. And he showed them all the treasures of his palace. He just sort of showed off and showed everything that he had. And Isaiah the prophet came and said, what did you just do? Um, and Hezekiah told him, I just showed them everything I had. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood will be born, that will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, this is what he thought inside, 
Will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? In other words, okay, it won't happen in my lifetime. <laughs> That's good. I dodged, I dodged the bullet on that. My children will suffer the consequences, but I won't. Well, this is not, I think, the proper attitude to have. How terrible to think this way. Should we not be concerned for our children, and our grandchildren, those that come after us? Should we not rather suffer the consequences of our actions rather than to have it fall on those who come after us? Well, there will be consequences in the present, okay? But there will be in the future as well. What are the consequences? Well, first of all, if you look at verse number three, the word ophel, it's not a common word for us, um, is a polite word for feces, for dung, okay? And in Exodus chapter 29, we are told what you do when you have sacrifices. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it in the Lord's presence and the entrance, and at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat around the inner parts, the covering of the liver, and both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its offal outside the camp. It is a sin offering. This is what God is saying. You know how you're supposed to do the sacrifices and you're supposed to take the feces that are still inside the animal when you sacrifice it? You're supposed to take that outside and burn it. I'm going to smear it all over your faces. Well, that in itself just sounds really gross. But that, I think, is secondary to this, what God says, you're going to be taken out with it. The part that is supposed to be burned outside, and there are some people who see this as Gehenna, which becomes the word for hell, you're actually going to be taken outside the camp with the things that are so, supposed to be burned. These are the consequences in their lifetime. This is what God will do to them. But why, why is God so mad? Why this admonition? Look, if you would, at verses 4 and 5. In a word, it is covenant. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave it to them. I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. The Lord had entered into a covenant with Levi. And he wanted the covenant to continue. But he knows that the descendants of Levi aren't living the way they're supposed to. So he has to get them back in line. Because he wants the covenant to continue. The covenant called for reverence. It is a covenant of life and peace. But they're not living up to it. By the way, this idea of a covenant of life and peace is found in Numbers chapter 25. It's the story of Phineas. Phineas was the son of Eliezer, who was the son of Aaron. And as Israel is coming close to the promised land, it's been 40 years, and now they're on the last leg of the journey. They come near Moab. And there, the people of Moab basically seduce them into worshiping false gods and in being involved in sexual immorality. While Israel was staying in Shechem, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. 
So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In other words, he's just blatantly, he's bringing this woman to his tent and he wants everybody to see that he is going to be involved in sexual immorality. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into his tent. And he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. If you wish, Phinehas, while they are in the act, puts the spear through both of them, because what they are doing is an abomination to God. Worshipping a false idol is a serious business. Absolutely is a serious business. It shows a total disregard for God, a lack of reverence. But Phineas reveres God. He honors God. And therefore he does what he does. Therefore, tell him I am making a covenant, my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Yeah, well, it's not going so well for the descendants of Phineas. They are showing utter contempt for God. They are not showing reverence for God. And this is not right. We're told more about Levi, by the way, if you look at verses 6 and 7 here in Malachi 2. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He, wa- he walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. This is Levi, the Levites. This is what they're supposed to do. Moses, before he died, uh, pronounced a blessing on the twelve tribes. And this is what he said about Levi. Your Thummim and Urim belong to the man you favored. That is, uh, two pieces, we don't know exactly how this worked, but it's how people made decisions. The, the high priest wore this in order to know if yes or no what they should do. You tested him at Massa. You contended with him at the waters of Meribah. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but watched over your word and guarded your covenant. In other words, when the choice was, am I going to do what God says, or am I going to do what my family says? If your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters say, we want to worship false idols, no. Levi said, I'm going to stick with the word of God. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless all his skills, O Lord, and be pleased with the work of his hands. Smite the loins of those who rise up against him. Strike his foes till they rise no more. We see this lived out in Nehemiah chapter 8 when Ezra read the law. Do you remember? And the Levites gave the explanation. They made clear the meaning of what was being said. This is what the priest in Malachi's day should be doing. But they're not doing that. The lips of a priest ought 
to preserve knowledge. His mouth, from his mouth, men should seek instruction. It's not happening. But there's something else in verse number nine, which I think is, for me at least up to this point, one of the most powerful things said in the book of Malachi, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. It's something to be called the messenger of God. But in the Old Testament, it's utterly amazing. You know who the messenger of the Lord is in the Old Testament? It's the angel, the angel of the Lord. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, what we call the pre-incarnate Christ, when Jesus appeared in human flesh before he came born of the Virgin Mary. This is the only time in the Old Testament that a priest is called the messenger of God. Haggai, interestingly enough, is called a messenger of God. Other than that, it always speaks of the angel of the Lord who comes to give a message to God's people. To be called the messenger of the Lord is the highest calling. And yet these people have carelessly, uh, contemptuously carried, about, carried out the business of being a priest. Verse number 8. What have the priests done? But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. Three charges here. You have turned, uh, turned from the way. God's way. God's truth. This is how you're supposed to live. This is the way. Walk in it. And they've turned away from it. But secondly, because they've done that, they've turned other people away from the way of God. They've done so by their bad teaching and by their bad example. And thirdly, they have violated the covenant that the Lord made with Levi. They have failed. They have failed miserably. What was said of Levi could not be said of them. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false is found on his lips. Yeah, you couldn't say that about the priest in Malachi's time. Are there consequences? Verse number nine. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Stop and think a minute. Are the priests going to be taken seriously? Are they going to be taken seriously when they're not doing what God tells them to do? Um, There's a part of me that wants to say, yes, they will be because they're doing what the people want. Paul talks about in the last times there will be preachers who will preach what people want to hear, tickle their ears. So you could say maybe the priests are doing what people want them to do. No, I think God says... I'm going to make sure that people don't take you seriously. You get up and offer sacrifices and do these incantations and you know, quote the book of Psalms and say all these wonderful prayers and people are going to be snickering at you and say, what a bozo, what an idiot. They will not be taken seriously. They who are the messengers of God, who are supposed to be the leaders in their nation, will be seen as despised and humiliated. They will not be taken seriously. Why? Because they haven't followed God's way. They've followed their own. They follow their own. They show partiality, favoritism. They do things the way they want them to be done instead of the way they should be done. You will remember that the theme of the book of Malachi is God's unchanging love. And what we've seen in this book is a contrast between God's love for his people 
and the absence of love in his people for him. He loves his people. It seems pretty clear that they do not love him in return. Here in the first nine verses of chapter 2, we see that the priests have no love for God's glory. They're not concerned about God's reputation. They just do things carelessly. And secondly, they show no love for his law, for his word. They just teach whatever they want to. They're really not concerned to do things the way God said they should be done. Here, I think we can begin to make application in our lives. Do we show love for God's glory in our living? Or is it all about us? It's about our reputation. We want to look good. Are we like Peter? We don't want to be embarrassed by being identified as a follower of Jesus. But are we jealous? Do we care for the glory of God? Do we love God and his glory? And the second is, do we show love for God's word? For me, when someone would, if someone would say to me, I love the word of God. Damon, I love the Bible. I may not ask this out loud, but the first question in my mind is, have you read the Bible? Because there are many people who say that they love scripture, but they have never read it. And then when somebody brings up a difficult passage, you're like, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I'll have to think about that. If we are going to love the word of God, then obviously we need to at least read it, to know it on some level. And then come back and we can have a conversation to talk about whether or not you love God's word or not. The priests did not. They did not love God's glory. But they wanted God to love them. Come on, God, love us. Bless us. Just gush over us. Like, you know, over little children, just fawn over us. But we don't have to do anything. No. God loves them deeply, unconditionally, and he expects in return that they would love his glory and they would love his word. And the Lord willing, we will see next week that the priests not only do not love God's glory or his word, they do not love God's people. And ultimately, they do not love the gift of a partner in marriage. And Moses, uh, Malachi will be quite clear about this. Um, and God will judge his people for this. Let's pray together. Father, we live so far away in terms of time and even geography, culturally, from these people that Malachi spoke to. The sacrificial system really seems too bloody for us to to get interested in. But this is how you set up worship, that it one day would point to your son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And these priests were absolutely trashing it, defiling it, showing contempt. And they thought they could get away with it. Help us to see that because you love us, there may be consequences to our actions. Because of your great mercy, oftentimes you you withhold the consequences. You're gracious. We don't always receive the due reward of what we have done. But there comes a time because of your unconditional love that you will in fact seek to correct us. To get us back on the path. And it may seem harsh 
Certainly the language to the priest seems very harsh. But we are to love you. We are to love your word and walk in it. May your spirit speak to our hearts. It isn't just through my speaking, through words, but by the work of your spirit that our hearts are warmed and warned. By your grace, you would draw us closer to yourself. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence moment by moment in the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.